your Bibles with you this morning or your mobile device, turn it with to turn to it or flip through it, I guess you might say, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 5 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. The title of the message this morning, as you can see, is this thought. Why Jesus had to become a man. Or why Jesus became a man. Couldn't think of a more fitting uh, message or thought uh, for Christmas time. Actually, this message has been in the cooker, as my grandmother used to say, for um, a couple of years. Um, I had prepared this one back in 2019 for some reason, and I never got a chance to, to present it. So um, I don't know if that's a good thing or, or a bad thing. So we're going to look at this text before us in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, this idea that why did Jesus have to become a man? You know, when I was younger, this is a question I'd often think about, especially at Christmas time, um, thinking about Jesus being born as a baby. And each year at Christmas time, this word, the incarnation, would be thrown around. And it took me a while as a as a youngster, even as a teen, to really understand what in the world does incarnation mean. And it just has the idea of enfleshment or embodied in flesh. Jesus somehow became embodied in flesh. Now, I know what the word means, but I still really struggle trying to understand what exactly that means. I mean, if you think about it, how is Jesus, one who did not have a physical body, take his very being and place himself into Mary's womb? And then nine months later, he is birthed into this world in the form of human flesh. And yet the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 14, says it so simply. Uh, John says, the word or Jesus became flesh and lived among us. I find that sometimes people have struggle with believing in the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. But they don't have any struggle here when we talk about Jesus becoming a baby, being born in Bethlehem. And to me, that's even more hard to understand how that happened than actually Jesus rising from the grave as a man. Now, do you realize that if we didn't have the incarnation or if we didn't have Jesus becoming a man, there would be no resurrection as a man? And we're going to talk about that later. We talk about a lot about Jesus being the Son of God, and that's an appropriate title for him because he is the Son of God, and he deserves that title. But do you realize that the title Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title that he used of himself? More than 80-plus times throughout the four Gospels, that word is used, Son of Man. It was his most favorite term that he used in all of Scripture. I think that says a lot about what we're going to talk about today. Now, to me, the most helpful treatment of the subject of how Jesus became a man and his humanity is found here in this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through the rest of the chapter. It gives us the why. It gives us the fact that why did Jesus have to become a man? Why was the incarnation so important? Why did it have to be this way? Surely there could have been another way in which this was accomplished. Now, what's interesting is that in the context of the book of Hebrews and the larger context of the book, some of the original readers of the book of Hebrews felt like they wanted to abandon their faith in Jesus because of his humanity, because he was somehow human and God at the same time. They thought that was inferior. 
They viewed the incarnation as something that was, they didn't want to be involved in. What good would it be for God to become man or placed on the same level as man, they might ask. But what's interesting is that in the authorship here of the book of Hebrews, it clearly demonstrates that Jesus was not inferior because he was a man. It's quite the opposite, actually. And if you really want to take your understanding of Jesus to the next level, if you really want to understand how much he loves us, then you study why he became a man. Jesus is so much better, the book of Hebrews says, because he is a man. And that's the gist. And as we look through this passage that we've got before us, I found, and you might find more, and I know there are more, but there are seven reasons, seven reasons in this text why Jesus had to become a man. Seven reasons included in this text as you go down through it. I'm going to show you all of them. Seven reasons. And all of these reasons on their own can become a sermon on its own. Okay? These are just seven reasons why it was so important for Jesus to become a man. Seven reasons that demonstrate the importance of Christ's humanity. We celebrate this at Christmas time. And unfortunately, I feel like Christmas time is the only time we start thinking about Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem, about how he actually became human and had to die. It's something we ought to think all season long. But needless to say, this passage gives us seven distinct reasons why Jesus had to become a man. So look with me here, chapter 2, verse 5. Look at what it says. It says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, well, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all, excuse me, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, this first reason is to fulfill God's purpose for man, okay? So that's, that's, your, that's your number one, okay, to fulfill God's purpose for man. This is kind of a broad reason why, okay? Just think about this with me, to fulfill God's purpose for man. Because we all know if we read the book of Genesis, we realize that man really messed things up in the garden, messed things up royally. If you look at the context of what's happening here in this verse, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And verse 5 says, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. The point he's trying to make, he's going back to Genesis and we learn that God created the earth and he gave mankind rulership over it. Man was what created to have dominion over it, to take care of it, to rule over it. Not angels, not supernatural beings. No, he gave it to human beings. However, because of sin, what happens? Man's rulership is given up, at least temporarily. It's given up. Now, we should understand that in the present world, our inhabited world, it's ruled by the prince of the power of the air. It's ruled by Satan. It's ruled by <clears throat> his minions, as I like to call them. We also know from passages in the New Testament, like Ephesians chapter 6, it calls some of these 
fallen angels are called rulers or powers or spiritual forces. Um, and, and so I understand that you have Satan and his minions and his demons who have influence. And because of what happened in the garden, they've taken over rulership okay, of the world. Now, we know that Christ is ultimately ruling all things. But to further help his readers understand the point, verses 6 to 7 he goes to the Old Testament, and he quotes from the Old Testament to prove his point. He's trying to prove his point. And these two uh, verses, verse 6 and 7, come from Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 makes two distinct points, and I'm not going to develop them into details, but just let me give you the summary. He says, first, you cannot understand the true ma- nature of man without understanding Christ. Because Christ became a human being shows the importance of human beings. He didn't take on the form of an animal, did he? No. He didn't take on the form of some geological feature of his creation. No. He didn't take on the form of a, of a bird. <laughs> no. He took on the form of man. We have been made in the image of God. The angels or the supernatural beings have not. Nothing else is made in the image of God except for us, except for humanity. Therefore, Christ taking on human form confirms the value of God in man's eyes. That's why it's so valuable when a baby is conceived in the womb. That's life. God values that. And he has the power to fix what mankind has messed up. Now, second, Christ's voluntary act of taking on human form, verse 7, says you have made him a little lower than the angels, was needed for the redemption. And this a little lower than the angels kind of disturbs some people. They get a little... Nervous here. So what do you mean he was made a little lower than the angels? I thought he was more powerful than the angels. He is. But why a little lower than the angels? It makes us think that Christ is inferior to him. A better translation might be Christ for a little while was lower than the angels. But listen, friends, he had to be. He had to be lower than the angels because Christ couldn't have died for mankind if he wasn't the man. That's the point. That's why the incarnation is so important for every Christian to understand. Now, according to verse 8, as things are right now, we don't see the subjection of all things to man. We're not ruling. We're not reigning. We might think we are in our little kingdoms all over this this tri-state, but we're not. When man sinned in the garden, his destiny was marred. It was not changed. God doesn't make mistakes. We do. And in order for mankind to reclaim his destiny, what does he need? He needs to restore himself, but he can't. We can't. Because he was the object. We are the object that was marred. We can't do it on our own. So he needed help. So what does God do? He sends the ultimate man. The son of man is who he sends. The book of Romans tells us that through the first Adam, the result was condemnation. But through the second Adam, who is Christ, was brought justification. See, God's intent was for mankind to rule over his creation. And guess what? That's going to happen in the future. He's going to happen. But mankind sinned and gave up that right of ownership. Therefore, the only way it could be reclaimed was through a man, but not just any man. It had to be the perfect man. It had to be Jesus, the son of man. So when we say the first reason is to fulfill God's purpose for man, God had given man this grand purpose, and he messed it up through sin. 
But as soon as he made the mistake in Genesis 3, 15, God introduces a plan to fix what mankind had messed up. And that's through Jesus, the Son of Man. Okay? So the first reason here is to fulfill God's purpose for man. That was the, that was the point. Because on our own, we can't fulfill completely God's purpose for us. We need a Savior. We need the Son of Man. Okay? That's the first reason, to fulfill God's purpose for man. Now go to me with the second reason. The second reason is to taste death for all. To taste death for all. Look at what verse 9 says. It says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It's right there in the text, might taste death for everyone. Now, the last part of verse 9 is, is very powerful. It says that he, my translation says that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. The purpose of that humiliation of Christ, his humiliation, was that he might taste death for every man. But, but don't miss the intervening phrase, by the grace of God, it says. The author here is telling us that the substitutionary work of Christ arose out of God's unmerited favor, which means that the initiative in mankind's redemption was God's. It was not ours. God knew the only person that could redeem mankind fully and completely was his son. And God willingly gave up his son for a sinful race who tries to erase the existence of him everywhere. Isn't it true? Year after year after year, the world is constantly trying to erase the existence of God. Evolution tries to erase him by saying there's no one powerful enough to create the world. It just happened all by chance. Humanism tries to erase God by saying that each man creates his own destiny. He has no higher power he's subject to. He rules his own roost. Technology tries to erase God by saying that we have everything figured out. We don't need any supernatural help in our accomplishments. We can do it on our own. Religion tries to erase God by claiming they have a better way to get to heaven. You know, men of the past have tried to erase him by persecuting his followers, by burning Bibles, or making Christianity illegal. And from this perspective, ideally, humanity doesn't deserve a Savior, but God still sent one. But God still sent one. He didn't give a Savior that was convenient for him or one that would be good enough or one that was part of plan B. He gave us the very best of what he had, and he was his only one. And friends, that's called grace, that he might taste death for every man so that when you and I die, we don't have to experience death. Death is just a gateway to the next we don't have to experience that. He's taken that on. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who have put their faith in Christ. He's paid for that. To taste death for all. So he had to be a man. To be on the cross for you and to taste death for you. Because if he was God on the cross to taste death for you, it wouldn't be the same. He had to be a man. Look at the third reason. Verses 10 through 13. To bring many sons to glory. Or I might better say, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. You can put that in there as well. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, and by whom are all things, 
in bringing many sons and daughters to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, or are all of one family. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. You see, verse 10 helps better explain the grace of God that was mentioned in verse 9. It says, for it was fitting for him. And it's just a reminder that the incarnation of Christ, Christ taking on humanity, was always part of God's plan to redeem mankind. And that goal of the marvelous purpose to bring many sons to daughters in glory. You know, in the Old Testament, the theme of the Lord's leading his people is familiar. You think about the exodus from Egypt. That's probably the most familiar passage about God leading his people. He, at 80 years old, he calls Moses. And Moses, at 80, by the way, you all understand that, at 80, he calls Moses and says, go, Go back to Egypt. You lived there for 40 years before, so you're qualified. Go back to Egypt and get my people and lead them out. By the way, if you read God's conversation with Moses or Moses' conversation with God in Exodus 3, God tells Moses exactly in detail exactly what was going to happen before it ever happened. And yet Moses still had the audacity to say, I'm still not sure. God says, here it is. On a plate, on a silver, on a platter. Here it is. Here's what's going to happen. And Moses says, "I'm just not sure." And you know what? Everything happened exactly how God said it was going to happen. Now, that was free, by the way. The theme of leading God's people is familiar from the Exodus, and it seems that there's there's a comparison here. God's leading His people out of Egypt to the Promised Land in the past, and now God is leading many sons and daughters today into a new exodus of sorts. And that comparison is further strengthened by the use of the term here, captain. He says, for it was fitting for him, um, uh, for whom all things and by whom all th- are all things and bringing many sense of glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Captain means pioneer. It means initiator. It means founder. The same word is later on used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, Jesus is the author of our salvation. There are a few other nouns we could use to describe the word. But the gist seems to be a leader who stands at the head of a group and opens the way for others to follow through. Okay, So in order for us to experience glory, eternity forever with Jesus, Jesus had to be the one to open the door, to open the way through. And he couldn't do it if he wasn't a man. He couldn't do it if he wasn't a man. In order for Christ to become the leader of the people, by the way, he also had to go through suffering which is why the text says perfect or complete through suffering. Jesus didn't shy away, like we do, from the hard experiences of being human, right? He knew he would have to suffer and suffer immensely. This should not, this should embolden us not to shy away from any hardship or maybe self-denial or struggle or suffering that might be encountered in our service to God or in our struggle with sin. Paul in Romans 7 was very, very upfront with it. He says, I want to do this, but I end up doing this. I want to do this, but I end up saying this. I just struggle with it all the time. You know, after the resurrection, the first major persecution of the church leaders happens in Acts chapter 4. And after they were beaten and told not to preach again in the name of Jesus, the leaders came home happy 
Yeah, they came home excited. Wait a minute. Yeah, that's what the text says. They came home excited. They were happy they got to be beaten, flogged. You want to know what flogging means, you can look it up, but it's not nice. It's like taking a baseball bat to somebody. They were happy, happy that they got to suffer like Jesus suffered, happy that they had got to literally feel like what Jesus felt like when he was persecuted. They got to feel the pain that Jesus felt. They were happy about it because they had gotten closer to the Savior as a result. But today, we're not often happy about persecution. By the way, I'm not either. I don't think any of us are. I don't think we go out looking for persecution. We want to run the other way and escape it, but they were actually happy that they got to feel what Jesus felt like when he suffered for their behalf. I mean, talk about being connected with Jesus. You know, Jesus led the way for us through suffering. He became our forerunner. And by the way, he suffered for us so that we don't have to go through that kind of suffering that he went through. Yeah, we suffer because we live in a sin-cursed world. There are lots of things that are going to create suffering. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, and now Christ is our forerunner. He is our forerunner. He is our anchor in the heavenlies. He's gone before, and he's not ashamed to call believers his brothers or sisters. He was proud of them. How can you be proud of a horrible, sinful human race? But he was, and he is. Verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those being sanctified believers are all of the same family, are all of one. The language of this verse is significant because, again, those who the book of Hebrews was written were viewed by society as, as, as they were being persecuted, being ostracized for the Jesus they followed. What do you mean you follow a God who became a man? What do you mean? That, that's so inferior. And they were being tempted to fall back into the old ways and the old traditions. But being called a brother or sister in Christ would give these struggling believers assurance. It ought to give us assurance today. Jesus' humanity also speaks of our value. I mentioned this before. Seen both in Jesus' confession of us as his own family and the cost he was willing to pay to bring us benefit. His association with us and death on our behalf tell us our real worth in his sight. Think about it this way. If the son thought us worth dying for, this gives us a clear sense of our value to God. If he thought it was important to become a man so he could die for us, then we must be really, really important to him. We've got to be. We were made in his very image. And today, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, then we are his children. And that alone ought to provide us with enormous comfort and encouragement. Our brotherhood is first with Christ and then with fellow believers. That's why when Christ resurrects from the grave, he refers to his disciples as my brothers, my sisters. Christ is not ashamed of us, but sadly, many are ashamed of him. Now, he carries this into some Old Testament texts here. You know, here's the author of Hebrews, just like any New Testament author. Where do they get support for what they're saying? Well, they don't have a New Testament Bible yet, <laughs> so they go back to the Old Testament where they're familiar with. And so the next two verses, verses 12 and 13, a total of three Old Testament quotations are given to further bolster this claim of family unity that Christ has with his brothers. I mean, he has become a man so he can 
die as a man so he can fully associate with you and I. I mean fully and completely. And the first quotation comes from Psalm 22, and it's to remind us that because of Christ's work on the cross, everyone who accepts him is part of his family. That's a good thing, right? The second and third quotations come from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. And normally these two verses will be taken in the form of one point, we might say, but the author here deliberately separates these two, and it seems he wants to make two distinct points. The second quotation says, I will put my trust in him. Jesus is saying he himself puts his trust in God's plan, and accordingly he was obedient to death. In the same way, Jesus asked that if he can trust God's plan, why can't they trust in God's plan too? Look at it this way. If Jesus didn't think the Father's plan was going to work, do you think he would have became a man <laughs> and have left heaven to enact it? I don't think so. He's a pretty smart guy. He's a pretty smart fellow. The point is that we must respond to him in faith like he did to God. Christ had faith in God's plan of redemption. You know, what's our problem then? It doesn't mean he didn't have questions. You know, he, he had questions. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was about ready to die, he said, Lord, is there some other way we can do this? Is there, there's got to be another way. He asked a question. He wasn't trying to use another way. He just says, Lord, is there another way this can happen? And he says, nevertheless, your will be done. I'm following your plan. I'm following your will. Then the third quotation comes from Isaiah 8, 18, where he speaks of himself and the children his wife bore. Isaiah had two sons, and they had significant names, and they were a testimony to the ongoing presence and power of the Lord. And later on in the New Testament, Christ identifies the apostles as to those you gave me out of this word, out of this world. It's the idea that we are spiritual children. That's the point he's trying to make. And I'm trying to summarize these without going into specific detail. He will provide for us and prepares a future for us. Christ's suffering and death was not to just elevate himself or glorify himself. It was to bring many sons and many daughters to glory. And if he was not a man, then he could not do that. You see, the humanity is so, so integral, so, so integral to our faith. The fourth reason Christ became a man. Verses 14 and 15. To destroy the devil and release those in bondage. To destroy the devil and release those in bondage. As humans, we all share similarities in our flesh and blood, a common humanity, we might say. However, it was necessary, again, for Christ to assume limitations of humanity. In other words, he would become a man so that he might die and resurrect from the grave as a man, verifying to both death and Satan that he has the power over them. This resurrection power is passed down to his children, you and I. And because he has experienced death for us, we're not going to experience it if we believe in him. And in the same way, Christ's death destroyed Satan. His death also rescued those who have been enslaved. The point is that the fear of death, the fear of death can enslave a person, doesn't it? It, it can cause them to act selfishly and only live for the present. You see, the only way, excuse me, one of the many ways the devil has power of humanity is with the threat of death, Right? Mankind spends what? We spend time, we spend money, we spend resources to avoid death or prolong our life. I mean, how many movies and TV shows are about trying to prolong life, trying to find ways, sci-fi shows, to prolong life? 
Uh, there was a guy that I read about, a Russian multimillionaire. His name was Dmitry Izkov. I think I said that right. If not, I'm sorry, Dmitry. But his name is Izkov. And he has this, this initiative, this 2045 initiative. That's the year, the so-called year he hopes to complete it. Okay? And listen to what it says. He aims to create technologies enabling the transfer of an individual's personality to a more advanced non-biological carrier and extending life, including to the point of immortality. So he basically wants to transfer your consciousness. And, and many TV shows and movies have tried to show how that's going to happen. I have to chuckle when I read this because the irony here is that technically we are all immortal. You realize that you're either going to spend eternity with Christ or you're going to spend eternity separated from Christ. So we are all immortal. But he tries to prolong his physical life here on earth by this initiative. And several other multi-billionaires have, have tried put their money into efforts wherewith to try to extend immortality and extend life. But as a believer... You know, we have no need to fear death because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But I don't want to see death any sooner than you do. <laughs> I believe that and I agree with that and I know the Bible teaches that. But death still has fear. It still creates fear. The devil has no power to keep us separated from the Lord. Death is just entrance into spending eternity with Christ and knowing that death is not the end creates a sense of hope, Right? And allows them to live out their faith in this present world. You know, in the Old Testament, the believers who were living in the Old Testament, they had the hope that one day the perfect sacrifice would come, and that would be Jesus. Well, today we look back and we know the perfect sacrifice has come. But guess what? We get to go to be with Jesus one day, and we look forward to that. That's our hope in the New Testament, our hope of being with him. i got to move quicker. I'm going to... Reason number five... To become a high priest for men. To become a high priest for men. Reason number five, to become a high priest for men. Look at verse uh, 16 and verse 17. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in pertaining things to God, and to make a propitiation uh, for the sins of people. So to become a high priest for men, it seems that for the author, the whole discussion of this incarnation arose out of this contrast, how Jesus is so much better than the angels, how Jesus is so much better than the angels. Why, what, what's the deal with the angels, by the way? Why are they in this discussion at all? You, you, you might have already been asking that question, like, come on, we're waiting, why is it here? Well, the whole idea was that the, the Jews believed, and there are several passages in the Old Testament that teach how the angels kind of mediated the Old Testament law, kind of gave them to Moses, and then Moses gave them to the people. So the angels were somehow involved in mediating the law, okay? And if the angels were involved in mediating the law, that's a big deal. They're, they're pretty important people. That, that's really significant. But what he's saying is that Jesus, even though he became a man, is so much better than even the angels, who were involved in mediating the law. Because it says, he uses the designation here, the seed of Abraham. Because Abraham is a spiritual father of all people. God said through Abraham in Genesis 12, what did he say? He said, through him all nations will be blessed. Not 
the nation of Israel only will be blessed. It says, through me, all nations will be blessed. The seed, excuse me, of Abraham, he's talking about our spiritual heritage. Once again, the point here is that flesh and blood, flesh and blood people, not angels, Jesus came to aid. Angels were not made in the image of God. We were. He doesn't give aid to the angels. He gives aid to us. Actually, the angels are ones who serve us, is what the text says. And because he is flesh and blood like us, he can be our high priest. Jesus' identification with us, he's taking on the form of a man, made it possible for him to become our high priest. Think about the term priest. A priest was a man who was, what, taken from among men, right? You had to be of the tribe of Levi. You had to be one of Aaron's descendants, taken from among men. In the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, you brought your sacrifices to a priest. You sinned, you brought sacrifices to him. He would offer the sacrifices for you on the altar. But we don't do that any longer because Christ offered himself. He kind of threw himself on the sacrifice on the altar for our behalf. But he's also the high priest, and that's significant as well. Because the high priest had a special duty. The high priest offered a sacrifice once a year for the sins, you ready, of everybody, of the whole nation of Israel, all of them. He went into the Holy of Holies, offered the sacrifice, took the sacrificial, the blood, and put it on the goat, scapegoat, literally scapegoat, you know, that we think of, and that scapegoat was taken outside the camp, okay? Once a year, the high priest did this for Israel, but when Christ died, he did it on a cross, and his body bled. And he died not just for the nation of Israel. He died for the entire human race. And by the way, it happened, guess what, outside the camp. If you read the end of the book of Hebrews, it says that Christ suffered and died outside the city, outside the camp. It says it specifically. So there's huge imagery that's there. You know, we don't need to go to a priest like the Israelites did as part of the old covenant. They were dependent on that intermediary to approach God. But because of what Christ has done, we can go directly to the Son, who is our high priest. His sacrifice is a means by which we can approach God. Aren't you glad you don't have to go through another person or priest to get access to God? You can go to him. You can go to the source with any problem. And by the way, he always has the right answers, doesn't he? May not be the answers we want to hear, but he has the right answers. Now, the high priest, Jesus being the high priest, he had to become a man to be a high priest for us. If you read chapter 4 through, through chapter 10 of Hebrews, that's the rest of the discussion. And we're not going to talk about that. But just in case you want to study that at another time, it's there. The sixth reason is to, to make propitiation for sins. To make propitiation for sins. Look at verse 17. He says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in, pertaining, uh, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the word propitiation is important. Why is it important? Because some translations use the phrase make atonement. Yours might say that. Or others use the term expiate. Yours might say that as well. Those words don't convey all the meaning but propitiate does. And I know it's an older word, but it's a good one. Because the word expiate or make atonement signifies a cancellation of sin, whereas propitiation denotes the turning away of God's wrath. Now watch what happens. The Israelite would have made sacrifices in the Old Testament. 
They will come and bring their sacrifice, and the sacrifices would atone for their sins. But that atonement could never completely turn away God's wrath. The author of Hebrews at this point does not tell us how propitiation, you know, technically how it happens. That's the subject of chapter 9. But for our purposes here, when a priest in the Old Testament would make a sacrifice, he made atonement for sin. So atonement literally means they covered the sin. And isn't that kind of ironic? Because you can't hide anything from God, right? But it kind of covered the sin. Covered the sin. But the once and for all sacrifice on cross appeased God's wrath. It fixed everything. Something that animal sacrifices could never do, nor was ever designed to do. Something angels couldn't do. Something none of creation to do. And to think that to whom the book of Hebrews was written, they wanted to go back living in the old system. No, he was a propitiation. He turned away God's wrath. You better be thankful that God's wrath has turned away from you. You don't want to suffer God's wrath. You read the book of Revelation. You, you know We've been studying that on Sunday nights. God's wrath is in there. There's a lot of it in there. Okay, It's in there. Be thankful that you're not part of that. Okay, it Turns away God's wrath. It doesn't just cover it or hide it. Completely turns it away. And then the last one, reason number seven. To provide help for those tested. To provide help for those tested. It says, for uh, verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is also able to aid those who are being tempted. You know, he's undergone the same trials we experience. Body, mind, emotion. Remember that Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness? For 40 days, Jesus was constantly being tempted by the devil. For 40 long days. And we have trouble with our own flesh, <laughs> with the own world that creates temptations for us. But he was tempted directly, it says. Satan was there for 40 days. Not just three temptations. You read what Luke says. He says Jesus was constantly tempted for 40 days. 40 days. Satan tried to get Jesus to break faith with the Father's plan. Satan was saying to Christ, you can make your own route to glory. You can. And it doesn't have to include suffering. In fact, you can bypass the plan of the Father if you just, you know, just simply bow down and worship me. We can bypass all that stuff and I can give you back what you've come back to take. The temptation was not to follow God's plan. And each day we were faced with similar temptations that would derail us from following God's will for our lives. You know, I'm thankful that Jesus didn't just appear as a man and die for the sins of the world as a 30-something-year-old man. Think about that. If Jesus just appeared as a 30-something-year-old man and says, hey, I'm the Son of God, and I'm going to die for, for you guys. Um, let me start my ministry. Believe in me. I mean, it could have worked that way, but it didn't work that way. His journey started in flesh, and it started as a baby in Bethlehem. He knows what it feels like. He knows what it feels like to struggle with temptation from the perspective of a child, because he was a child, from the perspective of a teenager, because he was a teenager, from the perspective of, a, of a, as an adult, because he was an adult. He wants to be our help for whatever stage of life we find ourselves in. 
He can look at us and say, I know exactly, I know exactly how you feel. That temptation, that struggle that you're facing here, I felt that before. I have felt that exact one before. I know exactly what you feel like. Nobody else can say that about what's going on in your own life. If somebody, if somebody comes up to me and says, Jeremy, I know exactly what you're feeling. It might be close, you know. They might feel 90% of what I'm feeling, but they don't feel 100% of what I'm feeling. Only Jesus can feel 100% of what you're feeling. So here's the grand summary. Christ became a man to suffer as a man, to live as a man, to minister to others like a man, to be tempted as a man, to lead others as a man, to teach others as a man, to follow God's will as a man, to learn humility as a man, to die as a man, to resurrect as a man, and one day he's going to come back for his church, and guess what? He's going to be a man, and he's going to be just like you and just like me. Jesus is fully human, and therefore he can fully relate to your problems and my problems. If Christ didn't take on human flesh, these seven of probably many more benefits would not, would not be available in this thing we call salvation. What would life feel like today if this didn't happen, if we didn't have a high priest to help us, if we had to go to the temple daily for sacrifice, if we feared death every second that we left our houses, I think we'd do that anyway. It would be miserable, wouldn't it? So while it might be strange to think that Jesus had to become a baby in order to save the world, I'm thankful that he followed through with God's plan. He didn't cheat the process or he didn't skip a step of the plan. None of it. And here's the biggie, okay? Here's, here's the biggest one. That when Jesus decided to become a man, guess what? He was forever sealed in that state as a man, okay? There's no going back, okay? So he gave up what he had to become a man, to be like humanity, to die as a man, to resurrect as a man, to one day he's going to come back and guess what? He's going to be a man. And guess what? All of eternity he's going to be a man just like you and just like I. That's what I still don't get. <laughs> he came and he did that all for us. Jesus drank deeply of our human experience. And he did that so he could fully relate to us. Fully relate to us. So what are you doing to more fully relate to Jesus? I guess is what we should be asking. Now we think about it at Christmas time. But what do you do each day to fully relate to Jesus? Jesus, <laughs> he's pulled out the red carpet for you. He has given you everything. He has related to you more than any person will ever do that in the entirety of the world, the existence of the world. He did that for you and for me. He died on a cross for you and for me. But he couldn't do any of that if he wasn't born as a baby in Bethlehem. The son has always been the son. He's never going to cease to be the son. It was always God's plan for him to send a son. But he sent the son so that he could fully relate to us. Think about that. The fact that Jesus decided that we were worthy to come and fully and completely relate to. And you think, how am I worthy? 
You're created in the image of God. You are more than worthy. So what are you doing, especially this Christmas season, to better relate to Jesus?